Hello, listeners, and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. Today, I'm very pleased to introduce to you Richard Jacobs, who is the founder and executive director of the Finding Genius Foundation. Those of you who follow me on social media, you will have seen that I'm now on the board for the Finding Genius Foundation. So what I thought we'd do today is tell you a little bit about what the foundation does. You can find out a bit about why Rich set up a foundation and maybe how I ended up on the foundation. And the other reason for this is, you know, we did the episode on Lost Connections, Johan Hari's book, about just the impact that depression and anxiety have on people and you know the extent to which it's affected people we all know. And this was another opportunity to try and do something to help people have more control over their well-being. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961 to 2020. Welcome to Blind Insights. I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good to hear. We also have a special guest, Richard Jacobs. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, both of you. It's, it's good to be here. Okay, this is very different for me because normally I've been on Finding Genius podcast and I have to prepare for lots and lots of questions. Whereas today, I've got lots and lots of questions, but I also know half the answers. So. I don't know whether to go with questions I know the answers to or questions I don't know the answers to. So I think I'll start with a, a question that Rich can decide how to answer. Would you like to start with your own story of why you started thinking about setting a foundation up? Yeah, so about four years ago, I'm driving home on the highway at night. You know, I went and got a coffee. I used to drink coffee back then at like one in the morning, which is crazy. And all of a sudden I can't see the road and later on, I found out why I had, I had gotten hit from behind by a, you know, like a passenger truck that was, I was going about 60 miles an hour. The truck was probably going a hundred and he hit me from behind and it gave me a concussion. My head went back and I was looking at the ceiling. I didn't know it at the time, but that's why I couldn't see the road. My brain couldn't compute what was going on. And I ended up going off the road, but luckily it was into a grassy area, not off a cliff or into a wall. Uh, I came to a stop and, I had, um, I thought all my teeth are broken. My windows had shattered and I was obviously in a lot of pain and my head was bleeding. Um, the guy that hit me was a young guy. He was probably like 22 and he was just coming from bartending kind of ironically. And he was so freaked out that I had to calm him down a bit, <laughs> but I did tell him, you got to call the police. Cause I don't know if I'm dying here. Cause I was, blood was coming out of my head. And it was, again, I thought all my teeth are broken. I ended up spitting into my hand and I saw a bunch of, broken glass in my in my hand so I realized the window must have shattered and it went into my mouth somehow but thankfully thankfully my teeth weren't broken well fast forward I get to the hospital and they do like a CT scan on my head and neck and they tell me I have nodules in my thyroid I didn't know anything so I said okay I don't know what that means I went home and then I went to my primary care doctor and he said yeah you know you need that checked out that could be a problem so I went and got it checked out and I was told I had thyroid cancer so you know, hearing you have cancer usually makes your insides liquefy and, uh, you know, you, you start not feeling too good pretty quickly after you're told that. 
so I, I, I suddenly realized, wow, you know, I'm, I was 42 at the time and I realized, you know, I could die a lot sooner than I thought I was going to. I just assumed, oh, I'd live to 80, 90 and, you know, die of old age. So it kind of, you know, scrambled my whole world hearing that. And I started researching on what to do and listening to podcasts. And I had remember Tim Ferriss, who's a pretty high-end podcaster, had interviewed a guy named Dominic D'Agostino, a researcher in Florida. They talked about the ketogenic diet. So, you know, I make sort of a long story short, I changed everything I was eating and my health, and I started researching as much as I could to help myself. And I think I fared very well compared to most people because I did that. But I had a lot of frustrations along the way. I go talk to my endocrinologist and I'm telling her stuff that I'm learning. And she's like, well, I don't really know about that, but here's the protocol. You know, I ended up getting um, radioactive iodine as part of the treatment. And I asked her a bunch of questions about it. She goes, I don't know. You need to talk to a nuclear medicine doctor. So I said, okay, who do I talk to? She says, I don't know. So I had to go find it myself. So it was a very, very frustrating experience. And I remember at one point, I was having a biopsy in my neck to confirm that it was cancer. And after the biopsy was done, which is very invasive, I thought, if I had a billion dollars, I wouldn't get two or three biopsies just to check. So I realized, you know, okay, I'm headed down this path. I'm trying to learn what I can, but it's scary. I feel like I'm going to die right then and there. And, you know, I wasn't in a good headspace. Um, I considered talking to other experts, but they were four to six months in terms of booking. And I thought, I don't have time. I got to figure this out right now. So I went through all the standard of care treatment and everything worked out well. Luckily, it was one of the best cancers you can get, meaning it has like a 95% plus, you know, five-year survival rate. But out of that experience, I just learned, frankly, not to trust uh, traditional medicine as much as I did because they didn't have the answers. And I, I only found answers by researching it. And now, you know, years later, I know a lot more and I may have done different things, but I just didn't know back then. So all this kind of kicked around in my head for a few years and eventually led to creating the foundation. And I'm, I'm just going to leave a little bit of a gap there, but I just wanted to give listeners, again, the background on what happened. And we can fill in this last gap on how it translated to the foundation shortly, but just wanted to let you know that so far. That's an awful lot that happened very quickly. And of course, what we've talked about before is while you're going through all of this and it's affecting your well-being, it's also having a dramatic impact on your family because you're scrambling to work out how to stay alive and they're all feeling very helpless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. Like we, we went to this place to do painting, you know, they have this place called painting with a twist and we were painting this painting and I, I know it sounds silly, but it looked like a bunch of lymph nodes, <laughs> this picture. <laughs> It, it, I, I swear to God, it was weird. It was, we were drawing this picture and painting it and I was like feeling really just not good. And again, it's starting to look like a bunch of lymph nodes and I start thinking about the cancer and I'm like, I, I was just not in a good way. And I just remember that for some strange reason, you know, to anyone else, they'd be like, what are you talking about? But, but yeah, that time, yeah, it was hard. It was hard to, you know, be a good dad to my kids and be a husband to my, to my wife and not be, constantly worried about this thing. You know, you listen to, you know, my wife would talk to me and sometimes I would say, I wouldn't remember a thing she said because I was in my own head. So I remember that feeling of despair and dread and there's all kinds of stuff. It wasn't uh, fun at all for a long time. Yeah. And this big then becomes the important transition thing to immaterial of what big thing people are dealing with in their life. So often it's going to kick off 
some level of anxiety or depression or both. And that may become the major thing, even if the first thing's dealt with, because they can happen in parallel. So you can have the experience of cancer, but at the same time, begin to get so used to feeling you know, anxious and, you know, and the despair that you have to work out how to do with all the things that come up, not just the thing that gets the immediate physical diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember I was doing a, uh, a podcast and you know, my phone rang and it was the doctor and I told the podcast guest, hold on. And that's when I, you know, they confirmed that it was cancer. And then <laughs> going back to the podcast, it wasn't a very good host from then. I was like, okay, yeah. But, you know, I just, the rest of the interview was just terrible, obviously, but, but yeah, if, you have to watch out. Otherwise, these thoughts will literally consume you. You lay in bed thinking about them. You get up here in the shower. You think about them. You, you know, you try to do business or go about your day. You think about them. So, like, it literally becomes all-consuming. So you have to rally and fight and push back continuously in order to just maintain, like, being okay. Yeah. And that's what sort of became very clear when we read the Ohan Hari's book, Lost Connections, is you know, pretty much the depression had consumed his life, literally, from the time you know he could remember as a teenager through to getting his first prescription for antidepressants at 18. And you know, finally in Vietnam to be so sick from eating an apple spray with the wrong poisons that you know, he's like, hang on. It's not just the physical sickness I have to deal with here. There's a deeper issue. And if I don't face it now, well, I've had a very near miss. I need to deal with the other major issues, which are the depression. And then all the research to put a book together and clearly having made major ground. But how many people, you know, like you could spend the time and the effort to learn so quick? You know, if you look at his book, he spent nearly what 18 months doing the research and writing it which is more time and resources than most people will ever have. Yeah, no, true. No, his book was excellent. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at it. It's on my shelf right now. I'm staring at the book. In reading that book and in doing interviews myself and having my own experience, I can say something useful to listeners. Um, I've, I've seen already there's three different types of anxiety and depression, at least. So the kind I had was acute. You know, I was told I had cancer and no surprise, I felt anxiety and depression. Um, the other kind I also have experience with because my wife and my son have more of a chronic depression and anxiety. So my wife's had it for most of her life. You know, we're in our mid forties, but uh, I just, I, I see it as a weight, like a, a big rock on top of her, weighing her down all the time, you know? And my son now he's 14 and I worry because he's, he's been showing signs of it and that combined with my experience has been just the frustration has been building and building and building. And I'm not someone that just is like, Oh, well, you know, I, I see a problem. I'm compelled to try to solve it. So these are some of the things that, you know, have been happening over the past few years to push me towards saying, all right, I want to help people with anxiety and depression because I'm tired of this. And, Oh, let me get to the, the third, the third type. So in a recent interview, you know, Yes, this is probably obvious, but the, the lady that I interviewed, she works with people that are schizophrenic, bipolar, they go through psychoses, et cetera, like seriously mentally ill people. And I realized, all right, that's the third kind. So there's the acute ones from something bad happening, there's the chronics, and then there's the chronic plus acute, as you've said before, Dave. Um, and those, again, are the, the sickest, unfortunately, the most um, 
disabled people from the mental problems. So I've seen the three kinds. I've decided that the, the chronic kind is the one that I want to most address because I think it'll be the most helpful to you know the chronic people and the acute slash chronic people. So um, just wanted to you know to state that for now that uh, those are the three flavors of uh, of problems I see in regards to mental illness. And my feeling is that people who are going some, through something acute, if they can find a resource immediately that helps them in that minute, then it reduces the chance of the acute becoming chronic. You know, if they can get a toolkit fast enough and feel empowered fast enough, um, it might really change how long they have to suffer for. It might be that if they can deal with whatever the other issue is that causes the acute anxiety or depression, they can get through both things a bit faster than they may have first expected because they feel empowered and feel that there's this whole body of knowledge that's been summarized to make life, you know, easier to deal with these new difficult issues. Now, for the listeners' benefit, you've done some amazing books out of all your interviews on Finding Genius about individual topics. I'm thinking particularly of the virus book. Uh, you want to talk about that a little bit as sort of this history of learning about things in great detail in very short periods of time. Yeah, sure. Um, so this is a little bit different topic, but so on the podcast, the reason I started it originally was to learn stuff. You know, I would read an article about Bitcoin or about, you know, AI or 3D printing. And it was, it was okay, but, you know, the articles are just very general and the interviewers never asked the questions I wanted to ask. So I hired a friend of mine and, you know, he's my um, scheduler. So I'll, I'll find an article on something interesting. I'll send it to him. His name is Lucian. And I'll say, get this person, you know, try to get them. So he's gotten me, as of October this year, I'll be up to about 3,000 podcasts in the past five years. Um, so he'll get me someone in an industry. And at first I noticed, you know, I don't know anything about an industry. I'll ask really basic, simple questions. And I'll keep doing more interviews. I ask for referrals and I'll interview two, three, five, ten people. So I realized once I get to maybe 15 interviews, I'm starting to sound like an insider. And I'm starting to ask better and better questions. And at this time, what I notice is I'll run into a couple people that are just, I mean, they're spectacular. You could hear that they're really good at what they do. And they tell you things that you're like, really? I didn't, wow, I didn't know that. And it, now it gets really interesting. And in some industries, I've gone to 100 interviews. And then you really, you really start to find like some of these top performers, like some of these geniuses. And you can hear it within the first five minutes of talking to them. You're like, wow, this person is definitely you know, awesome to talk to. And it's, it's thrilling to do that. And at one point I wanted to take it to the next level because what was happening with the interviews is as I did more of them, I would hear over and over again, huh, that's a good question. I don't know. And I kept asking people more and more questions and I got better and better at it. And a pattern I noticed is I would ask five, six, seven people a question they wouldn't know. And then I run into someone and they would go, oh yeah, I know about that. Here's an example of it. And I started thinking, well, why don't these other people know? They've been doing X for 30 years. How is it that I'm asking them questions that they're saying, I don't know the answer to, and they're doing it for 30 years, and I'm just interviewing them. I haven't done it at all as a profession. Um, so when it came to the virus book, what I did is I, I asked the toughest questions I could, and all the ones that people really were having a hard time answering, I compiled all those into a separate question bank. And then I went back and found the top virologists I could find and re-interviewed them and ask them now the toughest questions. And that was like, it was super thrilling because that felt like 
the Olympics of interviewing. It felt like I had reached a level that I had never reached before of depth. And creating that book was just, it was a lot of fun. The format is question and then like five or six different people's answers. Next question, five or six different people's answers. So the, the book has, I think about 25, 30 questions. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of different virologists that are answering them. So that's, that was the concept for it. Now I'm moving on to cancer. I'm going to do one on anxiety and depression. Obviously I'm working on that. Uh, there's a lot more topics to go. And this is the wonderful thing with sort of working in this way, because what you realize in the academic world from my own experience is you get ready for your big yearly conference, but you know, you're going to be giving a paper at that yearly conference. So you turn up as concerned about your own performance or probably more than listening to other people. And there's multiple sessions on at the same time. So you never get to hear everyone you want to hear. And if you haven't done your presentation yet, always in the back of your head is the nerves that you're going to be standing up and talking to the top five or 10 people in your area. Whereas part of doing the interviews is you can build up the knowledge and you can just focus on learning and then asking those questions of the next person. Something that actually at a conference, as much as they're meant to help people spread information, they're actually far less effective than one good interviewer being able to just deep dive into an area and keep asking questions and then coming up with that like ultimate list and then putting the ultimate list to the highest performers. It really is the model of, you know, I think in a sense where conferences should go. And this is one of the original things we started talking about. What would be a more important thing to do? Potentially a conference on anxiety and depression or something that would help people more directly where they got the summary at the end. Yeah. And here's, here's the last part of the story of what started me on the foundation. So last year, my mom, well, the year before the end of 2019, my mom was you know diagnosed with like endometrial cancer. And I had learned enough at this time where I, I figured I knew how to help her, but she listened to my advice for a little while, but then stopped. I think she gave up, but it just made me like, I don't know, you know, every emotion in the book, but I never forget, you know, she, the, the doctor recommended chemo as they always do. She was in the infusion center and they were saying to her here, have some ice cream, have some donuts, have some cake, you know? And I knew from all the podcasts and all the research I've done, it's the wrong idea. You know, sugar stuff feeds cancer cells. So yeah. I told her fast, fast for 24 hours before the, the infusion. I know it's not easy for a while. She did it and she was doing a lot better than anyone else in her group. And I just couldn't believe these nurses just don't care or don't know, but they were just, again, oh, you need to eat here, have this. Don't worry. It doesn't matter what you eat. We just want you to be comfortable. And, and this just built up and it made me angrier and angrier and angrier. And, you know, eventually last year, my mom passed away and I, you know, of course I feel a mix of like, I tried to help her. I couldn't, you know, she was, she went down the same path as millions and millions of other people went down and I just, I had it. And so this won't be for everybody, but I decided I want to create a resource again for people suffering from anxiety and depression or people that know people that are suffering. And I want to find every possible treatment that they can look into themselves, but I want it all laid out for them. I don't want them to just go to one healthcare practitioner who probably knows 1% of everything that's possible and them to tell them their standard prescription and the person goes away and it either works or doesn't. I want people that are, that really want to help themselves or help others to be able to sit and see 20 different possible treatments and scientific literature on why they may be effective. And now the person's empowered 
to choose what they want to do. They may choose standard of care, fine. They may choose alternative stuff, fine. But at least they'll be empowered and have all the stuff right then and there. And for most people to do that, especially when they're not feeling well, they're not going to do it. You know, only the rarest, I think, will really like power through depression and anxiety and, and try to get help for themselves and not give up until they do. I mean, there are people out there and I've interviewed people like that, but unfortunately I think most people just get caught up in living and hopelessness and despair and all this other stuff. So that's, that's the reason for the foundation. That's the reason for the anxiety and depression, you know, for this first uh, project. And I want to develop other codexes, other guides for other conditions once this one's done, but that's the whole reasoning behind this. I know it's a long story, but this is all the factors that came together in my life to impel me to do this. Yeah, and that's the thing. It rarely does one good idea come out of a single event. It's lots of things have to come together and lead you down a path of going, you know, the clearest way forward is to combine all of this. In a sense, in the same way, by interviewing people in different areas, you started seeing the big picture to the point where you could ask the questions about the gaps. You didn't know what was in the gaps, but you knew it was worth asking the experts about these areas that other people didn't know. And this thing of saving people the time and effort when they don't have the time and they may be not up to the effort is sort of the most powerful thing you can do for people because so much literature says that if people feel like they've made a positive choice and that they have made the choice, whatever treatment it is will work better because of that level of commitment. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It makes sense. I guess what I wanted to say about it is, um, doing the podcast has really given me a, probably a 10,000 foot view. So like I mentioned, when I'm in an industry and I've, let's say really interested in it and I've done a hundred interviews, I picture myself floating above, you know, let's say, I don't know, like an ant farm or a, a battlefield and I could see all the players, where they're going, what they're doing. You know, I can see maybe not the whole industry, but a much wider view of any given industry. And I know if I can get these people together in the industry, to talk to each other and really spend time, the industry could be advanced tremendously. So that's a whole nother separate project. But what I've chosen to do again is, is empower the sufferers or the people that know the sufferers instead. I know I can't do everything, but again, another part of the impetus comes from seeing this big picture and seeing the power of this big picture. If you could see everything. And that's the thing you realize in so many areas of the world, there is someone doing that overarching view. So in the corporate you know, world, this is where you'd have corporate advisory people who know an industry inside out. They aren't necessarily in the industry directly, but their job is to be the analyst who can tell anyone, if you are going to get into this industry, where's the gap? If you are going to invest in this industry, where's the opportunity? If you are looking for the most major risk in this industry, this is the thing to avoid. So interestingly, people have done this kind of, you know, in-depth area analysis and worked out where the opportunities are and the risks are. But it seems in healthcare, you get divided by, you know, all the groups. We get the mental health people on one side, we get the conventional medical people on the other side, we get the functional medical people on another side. You know, we get at least three groups who will go, well, my answer is based on all this research and I trust it. And trying to get them to go, yeah, actually, but there's more literature that other people trust with good science behind it too. And trying to get everyone to take that into consideration is, you know, a difficult thing. Now, listeners, we had our first board meeting last week and what was incredible with that is, you know, 
I try not to have too much of an ego, but I normally feel like I am a reasonably smart person in most rooms. And a lovely thing of sitting in the virtual Zoom room for last week's board meeting was going, whoa, everyone here thinks at least as fast as me and has done more than me, which was really fun. Yeah, and I got them all from the podcast. They were all guests on the podcast, including you. So I, yeah. I, you know, I told you now when I interview people, I listen with a special part of my brain. I don't know what I call it, but if I hear something unusual, that person can contribute and give interesting insights like you, I ask them to be on the board. And that's how I got the board members. And I feel like it's a very eclectic crew, but they're open to many possibilities. Yeah. Like one thing I've noticed that this may be funny to listeners, they, you know, when I spoke to people that were involved with, you know, traditional medicine, they would say, well, why do you want to look at alternative, you know, cures? Those are not peer reviewed. Those, I don't even know if they're really science. They're just anecdotes. And then when I would talk to naturopaths or functional medicine doctors, they would say, why are you bothering with the current, you know, the current standard of care? It's all captured by big pharma. Those peer reviewed papers are just, you know, they're probably not even true. So I heard from both sides, oh, don't look at this, don't look at that, which reinforced my belief that I need to look at everything so that everything can be considered on an even basis. Yeah, and particularly because it is for the consumer who needs to find the advice in one place where they need to work out what fits with their understanding of their well-being, how they want to bring their well-being about. And if they can't find the advice somewhere, they'll find it somewhere else. So at least if, you know, the codex is going to provide a balanced response to everything where everyone has to be open-minded. And this was a fun thing about the board hearing how everyone has their preferred answer, but also is open to new answers. And it's lovely to see that combination of people trusting their expertise, but also having their egos under control enough to be open to the fact that there are things they don't know and should find out about. Yeah. The feeling I got, um, after everyone did their introduction is like, wow, if I can successfully harness all these people and guide them and we all, you know, walk in the same direction, I mean, we're really going to, you know, kick butt and get a lot of great stuff done. So it was really thrilling to hear everyone's expertise. I'm imagining this kind of round table of genius superheroes. Can, can I ask, this might be a terrible point to interject. Sorry, David, but can I Don't ask go. what, 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 what helps you qualify someone as a genius? What helps you qualify someone to get on the podcast? Because I've seen a few definitions of the word genius. And I think in the context of it being the Finding Genius Foundation, the Finding Genius podcast, I would really actually like to hear your definition of what, what that is. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, is, well, I don't want to call them frogs, but kissing a lot of frogs. I mean, here, here are the numbers as I see it. And again, I've done 3,000 podcasts, so I know. Um, in any industry, about 95% of the people are good, they're competent, they're licensed, wonderful. And then about 5% are really good. They've gone above and beyond, and they're, they're very good at what they do. And then, you know, this won't add up to 100, but it's close. About 0.1%, one in 1,000, you can hear it. I mean, you don't even need to know is this a, you just hear it right away. Like within the first five minutes of talking to somebody, you're like, whoa, I've talked to a hundred cardiologists and this person is like an alien. Like they're, they're talking about stuff that none of the other ones talked about. I could hear that this person really knows what they're doing. That's the ones I'm looking for. And when I run into them, I get that thrill. And that's the people that I've tried to get on the board. 
Um, it's a loose definition of genius, but what I can tell you, like, all right, I'll give you a couple of examples. So I used to go to a massage place. They call it Massage Envy. And, you know, the, the, you know, the massage therapists are pretty good. One time I go, this young guy, his name is Mike. He was like 23. He's doing an amazing job. He's a really good therapist, you know? So I'm talking to him and I said, you know, hey, how long have you been doing this? He's like, oh, two years. And we started talking about continuing, continuing education credits. And I know like massage people in the U.S. need to get like 12 credits a year or something, you know? And I said, oh, how are you doing with that stuff? He's like, I don't know. I really need to get after it. You know, I, I, I need to get more credits. I said, I'm sure you could do it. I said, how many do you have? He goes, 2,000. And I laughed. I said, what? 2,000? I said, people are, ba- uh, they, they barely do the minimum. What do you, what do you? you know, he goes, no, no, I need to do more. There's so much more I need to learn. I need to go to this school and this school. I need to keep, you know. And I knew him for like five, six years, and, the, and he kept going. I think he might have gotten up to like 10,000 extra credit hours by the time I, I left New York. But that is, that's one of the hallmarks of a genius. Like they just keep learning and learning and learning and learning, and they never give up. And it's never enough. And they just keep going and going and going. And they're not happy just repeating the same stuff they did or like incrementally improving it. They're just, that's what they do their whole life. So that's, I hope that story helps to, to clarify the kind of people I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, casually just having it, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours in their back pocket of spare credits is pretty funny. Certainly is a, is a great explanation of what qualifies people to, to join your cause. Do you find that people readily join, join your cause? Do you find that um, the people that you're speaking to that, you know, achieve this, low percentile one in a thousand kind of level of 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 mastery and and, and genius and, and knowledge and wisdom are open do they have the the time do they have the will to kind of join your cause or is that does that speak more to your persuasive power than i guess even their yeah their willingness yeah. or yeah, yeah i can explain that i'm not the the, the world's greatest orator but this particular project, I can see it's pulling at people. Like the most common thing I've heard after I give my spiel is, okay, I'm in. That's what they tell me. And it, I can literally hear the person saying it is like, okay, I'm with you. And it's, it's pulling on them. It's drawing them. This project I could see really is, um, it ha- it's going to have legs because it's really like everyone I know is affected in some way or another. You know, after the COVID situation or during it, everyone just frankly has been brain damaged. Not that they're stupid. I mean, their brains have been altered. Mine has too. I can feel it. I can experience it when I go out and about and stuff. So um, I see it as a follow-on pandemic to what's going on. And I see a lot of people in a lot of trouble, millions and millions and millions more than used to be. So I think the timing of this is right. And I think the subject is right. Um, And then going back to these people. So what I've noticed about these geniuses is commercially they're not usually very successful because they they're just into their thing they don't market themselves they actually tend to work out of like these obscure little offices in the corner of some building and a lot of people don't even know they exist so they're not like your traditional big commercially successful branded institutions they're kind of hidden away they actually are the gurus at the top of the mountain or in a cave somewhere or whatever so you got to find them. It takes a while to find these people. And then if you don't ask the right questions, you won't even know that you've gotten some of these people. So for instance, in an interview series, 
if I reach one of these people and they're the first one or two in an industry, I probably won't even notice. Later on, if I've done 30, 50 or 100 interviews, then I'm, my eyes are open to, to who these people are. But they're kind of like oracles. If you just talk to them normally, you won't see it. But if you know what to ask and you know the right questions and you have some knowledge, then you really can see, whoa, okay, I found one. I found a real good one. So these people are super busy, but I promise them the commitment is minimal. You know, an hour a month, I want their advice on certain questions. We have a quarterly board meeting, but I'm trying to be very respectful of their time and their efforts and all that. But this, I hope this gives you some insight into like what these kind of people are. Yeah, no, it does. But also it gives me even further insight into what it is that you do. And that really changes how I interpret finding genius. Because it isn't just here's here's a bunch of smart people it's actually really the journey of finding them in those obscure places asking the right questions to to properly identify them yeah and i guess even being humble enough to basically admit that but in some ways that makes you actually in i think a, a larger like star of the show and i know that you would probably not want me to describe it that way but the point of finding genius it necessitates having geniuses on i think the larger narrative is that it's the finding process i think is what i would tune in for you yeah. that's fascinating to me that makes you actually in some ways more interesting than probably sometimes the people that you get on i, I don't know how um i don't i don't want to make you feel uncomfortable but <laughs> well if i go to a, a party and i talk to somebody and i ask him what they do there's a much higher likelihood now that I could at least comment on things that what what the reaction I get from people that are in a given industry after a few minutes is like, are you, are you in this industry? Like, how do you know this stuff? <laughs> so that's the fun part. I tell them I've talked to a lot of people in the industry. What do you want me to tell you? You know, that's why I know some things. Yeah. And that's sort of part of the fun of listening to a series of interviews on finding genius on one topic is as the series goes on, Rich's questions get more and more advanced. His ability to put the pieces together gets more and more advanced and his ability to spot gaps gets better and better. So when he gets people on and goes, hang on, they're doing real well with the questions I now understand. Now I'll throw them some of the questions that are really intriguing that people seem to struggle with. So it's, it's just, it's part of what makes, I think everyone on the board has in common. And that is, okay, they've done a lot of work but they're still completely open to the next thing being exciting and new and having to go, all right, I have to do a heap of work again. But that's what everyone accepts as just their normal day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, well, the reason why the podcast is called Finding Genius and the foundation is called the Finding Genius Foundation is years ago, there was a, a show on TV with Stan Lee. You know, he was a comic creator. And this other guy they called like Plastic Man, he could... He was hypermobile. He could bend his arm around his head 20 times or whatever. So Stan Lee, the purpose of the show is he would send him out to go find these freaks, you know, these weird, crazy people that had extraordinary abilities. Like, you know, one guy, he just, he weightlifted and only worked on his left arm till it was huge. <laughs> and the other arm was like a shriveled, you know, skinny arm. So, and he was like a world champion right, um, arm wrestler. So, I know for some reason, I just thought it was so cool. And it's just turned into like, I'm doing that just with different kinds of people. But I love the finding process. I love, you know, talking to these people and seeing all these worlds that are simultaneously happening that we don't even know about. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, 
when Derek sort of suggested, you know, listeners, it was Derek Abbott who we had on to talk about the hydrogen economy and where we talked about, you know, me trying to explain Iran in 45 minutes with Derek asking the questions. It was Derek that recommended me to go you know, on and be a guest first. And now I've been back to answer sort of three different political questions for Rich and each time from a completely different angle because he's got excited about something going, well, let's talk about this. And I'm a bit more obscure in that not a lot of the episodes of Finding Genius have been political. But the point is, there are the big themes that run through it on topics. And then there's just, hey, this person's doing something novel. It gives me a reason to think a bit more and think in a new way and challenge preconceptions. So the consistency is always you'll learn something new if the guest is up to it. Yeah, and some guests are letdowns. You know, some... Uh, you know, they're just not exciting. Some of them will just recite, you know, the same old, same old, and some are just extraordinary. Um, you know, this is how I found you, David, is when I yeah. interviewed you, something in my brain was like, hmm, this guy has very unusual insights. I like this. And then when I interviewed you about what it's like to be blind, and I asked you that fateful question, you know, so you can't see, but whether abilities of yours are heightened and you told me you're able to see disparate pieces and put them all together to figure out a situation. I was like, all right, I want to do consulting with you. I want to learn from you. And then I wanted you to be on the board. You know, what, what would political stuff have to do with anxiety and depression, but there's value there. It's been proven. And that's why I picked you just so you know. Well, again, that's the lovely thing in a sense I've done in my own brain, what you've done by interviewing hundreds of people in an industry kept pushing for the next bit of information and sifting for the pattern without imposing a pattern before one appears on its own. And that's something most people don't do. Most people impose a pattern early because they're tired or they just want an answer. And by imposing that pattern early, there's sort of a pattern there, but most of it is their need for a pattern or their bias towards an outcome rather than actually being willing to look at enough data to let the pattern emerge. Yeah, fair enough. If it's okay with you, I wanted to ask, you know, make an ask of your listeners that they can, uh, if they would, if they listen and they like this, I'd like them to reply to the podcast, if that's okay. And I, I would like listeners' help. Um, so this project, this codex, um, what I want to do is, my idea is to have people go through a quiz and they'll answer a whole bunch of questions about their life and circumstance. And then they'll be shown potential treatments ranked by relevance. And then they can choose... They can read and watch videos. They can, you know, look at the source material if they want. There'll be a list of practitioners that can help them if they want, but it's up to them to, you know, to reach out and get the help. But for listeners, if it's okay, I'd like their response on if they would like such a thing, um, what tweaks should be made to it? What would make them more likely to use it if they're going to use such a thing? So if, if it's okay, I just want to ask listeners if they can comment once this, uh, this episode's released and, you know, give feedback to you, which you can pass along to me. Absolutely. That's no problem. And of course you can find the finding genius podcast on all good, uh, podcast clients. So definitely make sure to check out if you haven't already listened to some of uh, Rich's episodes with, uh, David and there's, as Rich has said, thousands of other episodes that you can go and check out and, uh, uh, they all have uh, amazing insights. So um, if you're interested in this podcast, you'll definitely be interested in Rich's. So it's, um, 
a good place yeah. to go if you're looking for extra content when we can't fulfill that need. <laughs> and yeah, again, whereas we jump around, the nice thing is with Finding Genius, there's big chunks of cohesive development on an area. And if it's the area you need to learn about at the time, you know, 10 or 15 episodes in a row and the amount you can learn is just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which you. is fantastic to have that kind of resource out there because really, except for someone like Dan Carlin who goes, hi, I'm going to do a six hour episode on the beginning of the Persian wars. And in two months time, I'll give you the next six hours on the middle of the Persian wars. And it's like, Oh, uh, no, <laughs> it's just too much of one voice and one analytical tool as opposed to lots of voices and someone very open-minded asking the questions, which is a much more rewarding experience. Well, I, I want knowledge so much that David, you know, I ask you every week, who have you interviewed and what have you learned? So I, even yeah. by proxy, I want to interview more and learn more. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's, it's almost like if you're a default, if you've got the open mind, you have to learn to interview. Because in our world today, if you read all the books, you'd run out of time. Oh, but if you hmm. get someone in 50 minutes or an hour, and see, this is the thing, like projects like Blinkist, I love the idea of reducing a book to mm. 15 minutes of key information. But what I know is the times I've read the book and then listened to someone else's idea of what the book was about, and then we've interviewed the author, other people's summary and what the author thinks aren't the same. Yeah. You kind of need both because but everyone sees everyone else's work slightly differently. This is a, a practice as old as uh, Greek philosophy, even with, you know, Plato's dialogues. So yep. um, I, I think that conversational style um, is actually a really fantastic way to learn things because you feel as if you're a part of it. And Blinkist, I feel as if is a one step removed from even reading the book. The book, you at least feel like the author is talking directly to you, even if you can't reply. Yeah. Yeah, it's part of the problem of having to shorten something so dramatically. Like, I know there's this whole demand, you know, in podcast land for, can we make podcasts short? And of course, mm -hmm. the answer is, we can, but why would we? Well, yeah, when I guess it depends on what your targeted audiences are, because audiences clearly do want to listen for shorter amounts of time, because that's what ends up being popular. But who do you want to listen? The people who are going to listen because it's convenient or the people who are going to listen because they're interested. Yeah. So yeah, I've, yeah. I've found if, if people are interested, they'll listen for a long time, especially yeah. if it's a critical thing they want to know more about, they'll listen a lot. Yeah. So, you know, I found time doesn't matter uh, again, as long as the person has interest. Yeah. And that would be the fun thing over time would be, you know, years from now on the finding genius podcast once you're interviewing people who are perhaps were undergraduates now in 2021 and started listening in the area where they want to be a grad student and then they want to do their phd and you know say in four years time you interview them and they're now you know a postdoc and they say oh yeah well i went through these hundred episodes to work out what i should do my thesis on just look for a gap yeah, eventually well, that's cool. going to happen because yeah, there's not many repositories that you can engage with while you're doing the dishes, doing the vacuuming, going for a walk, you know, good quality interviews where you're getting the expertise, but in an engaging form of interesting people talking to each other is just the most amazing. It, yeah, it's, it's really the new version of what a library 
I think is going to become. Mm. Yeah. And one thing to mention too, the, um, the anxiety and depression codex, it's, it will also be for researchers. So anyone that's in the field, that they're willing to look at what else is going on and they review it, it'll really be an accelerant to them because all of a sudden they'll have access to, you know, several dozen other ideas that they're not considering. And hopefully if they're smart, it'll inform their research and make it better. And that's a wonderful thing to achieve basically for everyone, people who are suffering, people who care about someone who is suffering or people who have made the professional decision to try and look after other people. But when you have to invest so much time to get good in one area, you know, in one discipline alone, there's very often not an easy way to learn more. Whereas here we're saying, look, this is going to look at all the literature and evaluate and put it in front of you with the same level of rigor and the same level of kind of comprehensibility and cohesion. And that is such an important first to speed up basically how to help a sufferer, but also how to help practitioners to know more and to feel more confident about what they want to learn and invest in next to increase their skill set. Is there any question, you know, you wish we'd asked you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> being the guest is different than being the host. You know, when I'm, when I'm the host and I'm asking the questions, then, uh, you know, as long as the guest is interesting, I just keep asking, but I'm not sure. I guess the only thing I would say is follow up. So people can go to findinggeniuspodcast.com or they can go to findinggeniusfoundation.org. And that's where, if they want to read about the codex and join our email list where I give updates, uh, that's where they can do it. And listeners, if you would like to send any ideas or suggestions to Rich, feel free to either, you know, Tim or I, and we can forward them on, you know, or go to Rich to, the Finding Genius Foundation website. You know, really, any way you want to get information through to Rich, through us or through the Finding Genius Foundation website, it's all appreciated. And this is the point. We're early on in the process of developing the codex into depression and anxiety. So we've got lots of time to ponder on ideas and work out what to do with them. And we've only had the board together once. And even out of the first meeting, new good ideas came forward. So the potential is that if you put an idea forward, something you think is important, it's going to get thought about by some amazing people before and during a meeting. And that's going to make it possible for us to achieve even more as we work towards getting the codex out there where it's available to people who need it and professionals who want to extend their understanding. Yeah. And just to, for people to know, it's going to be a very low cost uh, license to be able to use it. I'm thinking, you know, maybe 50 bucks a license, or if someone's willing to go through the quiz and put in a bit of upfront effort, you know, we'll have scholarships where if people can't afford it, they can have it as a resource for free. But this, I want it to be available to anyone that wants it. And again, at a very low cost with a tiny commitment that uh, they can get this knowledge. And importantly, listeners, any money that comes through from this will simply get rolled into the next codex. So this is all about keeping this knowledge base growing into whatever area comes next. Like we've already talked, there probably needs to be one on loneliness because it's such a consequence of COVID. Now, there will need to be one on cancer. And every time we look, we think of something else that giving people a one-stop shop to begin their understanding and their journey towards empowerment you know, it could just be so important in so many areas. 
Yeah, and one last thing to mention too is that we're not going to do it and it's done. It needs to be worked on every year. I'm estimating about 15% of the total effort that'll go into creating it in the first place will be used to update it once a year so it doesn't go stale and it's a living, growing, you know, improving um, thing that will be used for years and years and years to come. So just want to let listeners know, it's not like we're doing this and oh, move on to the next thing. Uh, the yep. end goal is to have a series of codexes that are all active, all being updated periodically and are all in use. Yeah, which is, again, it's like, you know, taking the, the idea of Wikipedia, but putting it in the hands of enough experts to make sure that it really can help people and then continuing to grow it. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing to be a part of. And again, I'm so glad that Derek, you know, referred me to you. And out of that, you know, I came on the podcast and then I started doing work for you. And then you told me about the foundation and then you invited me to be on the board because it's really lovely having something to be excited about that is both intellectually stimulating and, you know, enormously rewarding at the same time. Yeah, thanks, David. And I know with you involved, it's going to it's gonna go really well. So I'm excited. Well, thank you, Richard Jacobs. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate it very much. And thank you, David. Thank you, gentlemen. And thank you, listeners. Hello, audience. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share your favorite episodes or leave us a review if you really love us. We'd love to hear from you. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Blind Insights or send us a recorded question to the email in the description to feature on an episode. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out.